Romans 5, 1 through 11. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we, also, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. For while we, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let's pray. Um, Father, thank you for uh, this morning, for every person in this room. Um, God, I, I just ask that you would um, remove all of the distractions, all of the stresses of this world, all of the things that just simply don't matter. Uh, God, I ask that you would um, reveal our sin to us this morning, um, our, our wicked path, our, our path of self-destruction, God. And, and I ask that you would reveal your truth to us, the truth that uh, you have saved us, God, that you have sent your son to die for us on the cross. Show us how much you love us today, Lord. I pray for Kevin and, and the Anderson family, um, that, that you would heal uh, Josiah through, um, God, his, his recent um, medical issue. God, I just, I just ask that you lift him up. God, we're praying for him. Uh, we ask that you heal him and just bless that family. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, thank you guys for being here. Uh, welcome to Aletheia. My name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here. I uh, appreciate you guys being here this morning. Uh, so like major elephant in the room, let's get that out of the way, I guess. So um, I was here on the campus yesterday uh, working on finishing up my sermon for this morning and got a call from my sister yesterday afternoon saying, you need to get home now. Josiah's having a seizure. EMS is here. So, um, so for those of you guys that are familiar, you've been here for a couple of years, you know this is not completely abnormal to our family. Uh, Josiah's had epilepsy since he was born, uh, probably even in the womb. And so anyway, I, I get home, and, and this particular seizure um, lasted much longer than normal. And so, you know, my sister is a pediatric nurse. She went with my, my, my wife. You know, she's going to be far more helpful than I am anyway. She's going to be able to, you know, advocate and, and do whatever else. And so I, I stayed at home with Gideon. And, um, you know, I kept getting updates, saying he's still seizing, they're still working through things. And the amount of people that... Um, once we kind of blasted out a message to you guys, letting you guys know what's going on, that we're praying and, and whatever else, just thank you guys so much. Um, I think like truly every time um, Josiah goes through a, a, an episode like this, and this is his first one since February, um, he tends to be out of it for, for days afterwards. And <laughs> last night he woke up and Jackie said he's awake. And I said, you know, is, is he kind of lucid or whatever? She goes, yeah. So she FaceTimed with me really quick. And, you know, he, I mean, he was his normal self other than being a little groggy. I mean, he, I mean, the, he, here he is, he's hooked up to machines. He's got all these things going on. And all he's telling me over and over again is how excited that his orange bracelet at the hospital looks like a watch. And that he has a watch just like dad now. And I'm like, well, you know, not really, but okay. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, and, and the, he, he, he bounced back. You know, uh, for those of you guys that, that have spent time with Josiah outside of church, because when he's here, he's very kind of standoffish and very reserved and whatever else. But you know that he's got quite a personality. Um, if he doesn't like something, he's going to let you know about it. He let the nurses know that he wasn't interested in an IV. He wasn't interested in any blood draws. So all these things are normal. He's eating this morning. He seems to be doing well. He'll, he'll likely, I would imagine, um, be sent home today. So thank you guys so much for praying for him and our family. Uh, we really, really do appreciate it. Uh, I hope you guys had a wonderful Thanksgiving. Um, our family did, and we got to hang out with a bunch of you guys that were here in town and really appreciated that. That was a great time. Brian smoked turkey. I'll never eat turkey again that's not smoked. Just... If you guys haven't had smoked turkey before, I apologize. Um, 
you've been lied to your whole life. So um, anyway, thank you guys for being here. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Romans chapter 5. That's where we're going to be this morning. This will be our last uh, week in Romans uh, for the rest of the year. Uh, because starting next week, we're going we're gonna to start an Advent uh, sermon series. This will be our first time kind of uh, celebrating Advent and trying to do something like that. So uh, we'll, I'm sure, have some bumps along the way. But uh, we're excited uh, for Christmas to be here uh, because it is a time for us to reflect and remember and celebrate the fact that God came incarnate in the flesh to rescue us uh, from our sin. And so we're gonna, we're gonna celebrate that throughout the month of December. Uh, but as you guys know, if you've been here for any period of time, I tend to, you know, share a little story or anecdote, kind of kind of like introduce the text to us uh, in the morning. And what's really kind of refreshing is here at the beginning of Romans chapter 5, I don't really need to do a ton because Paul starts with a transitional phrase from the outset in Romans 5, right? Look at verse 1 with me. He says this, therefore, since we have been justified, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, right? So he starts off uh, verse one by saying, therefore, since we have been justified by faith. Now, many of you have probably heard the joke uh, by me or some other corny pastor over the years, right? That kind of starts out like this, that says, whenever you're reading the Bible and you see the word therefore, you need to stop and figure out why the word therefore is there and figure out what it is there for. Right? You know, fun little play on words. Cheesy, I know, but still helpful. And so the, the question we need to ask is, wh- what have we been seeing up until this point in Paul's letter to the church at Rome? And why is he kind of sticking this clause in here, indicating to us that he's transitioning to something else? Right? Anytime you, you see that word, you should understand, okay, Paul has been making a point. He's finished making one point or whoever the author of the letter may be. He's transitioning to something else. What do we need to notice? And so for those of you guys that have been with us over the course of the last several weeks, you know that starting in Romans chapter 3, Paul made this major shift in kind of what he was arguing about, right? Romans chapter 1, chapter 2, and into chapter 3 was spent really kind of telling us as a human race how terrible we are, right? It was a fun couple of weeks studying that, right? We all just had these really big, heartfelt, happy moments, right, where we were all just gathered and excited about who we were as a a person, as a human race, right? But when we get to Romans chapter 3, right, looking at verse 21 and 22 is really where Paul makes this major shift, right, to help us understand where he's going, right? Look at what he says in in verse 21 of chapter 3. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And so the, the point that Paul made after he kind of let us in on this idea that the entire human race sits in the same position, which is that we are guilty of sin and rebellion towards God the Father as his creation, right? His next point was that God declares us righteous, which means not guilty, and that that justification only comes from Jesus by faith in what he had done and accomplished on the cross through his life, death, burial, and resurrection, right? That, that is really what we have looked at the last three weeks on Sunday mornings, right? That this idea of the doctrine of justification, right? To, to get theological for a minute. Paul has been sharing with you and I that while there was no hope for you and I for ourselves because of our sin, God made a way because of what his son had done. And that the doctrine of justification says that you and I are declared not guilty, but righteous before God the Father, even though we sin because of Jesus' life, because of what Jesus had done on the cross. That that is the doctrine of justification. And that there is no other way, no matter how good or terrible you are, there is no other way to be reconciled and declared righteous before God other than through the finished work of Jesus Christ. So we got really, really theological. And since that declaration, Paul has been trying to drive that point home. That especially to those that would have had an understanding of the Old Testament, right? I mentioned two weeks ago up here that, that his Jewish audience or the, the, the readers of the Old Testament, 
that to hear that God chooses to save solely based upon the work of Jesus and trusting in him would have been counterintuitive to pretty much anything they had been taught culturally at the time. That they understood life through the lens of the Mosaic Covenant, not necessarily through the Abrahamic Covenant. That they understood that to please God and to be accepted into his kingdom was both hereditary, growing up Jewish, but was also based upon their performance, based upon their following of religious rituals, based upon observing the Sabbath, based upon observing the Old Testament law, based upon observing certain religious rites and symbols and signs like circumcision and the ceremonial cleansings and observing the Day of the Atonement, that that Paul's Jewish audience would have had major, major red flags going off when they would have heard him saying things like, you can only be known as a son or daughter of God if you come to him by faith in Christ. This would have been a major stumbling block for them. And so what he, he did to kind of overcome that is he says, look, God has, this is not, it's not like God is operating in some new way with us. That God has been dealing with his people from the beginning based upon his promises and his performance, not the performance of us as human beings. Right, and he picks probably the two most important characters in Jewish history to prove his point. Right, he quotes first from Genesis chapter 15 by saying that Abraham was justified or declared righteous because he trusted in the promise that God had given him. Right, God promised Abraham that he would be the father of many nations and that through him all the nations of the world would be blessed. And it says that Abraham believed God and God counted it to him as righteousness. Meaning that his belief in God's promises are what saved him and made him righteous, not Abraham's performance. Then he moves on to say, okay, Abraham, the father of our faith as Jews, one of the things that we turn to and that we have great pride in was justified by his faith. But look also at David, probably the greatest king we've ever had. And called many times throughout the text, a man after God's own heart. And he quotes from Psalm 32. And David says that he is overwhelmed by the beauty of being justified by God's mercy and not by his own works. He talks about the beauty of how blessed it is to be declared righteous before God and have your, having your sins not counted against you. Having your trespasses not count against you because of what God has done. And so Paul has, say, has been saying this over and over again. We are justified, that means declared not guilty before the Father, by faith in Christ. That's kind of been his, his point over the course of the last two or three weeks as we've been working through Paul's letter to the Romans. And so Paul's saying, since we have been justified by faith, apart from works-based salvation, apart from religion, apart from religious rites, uh, holidays, traditions, rituals, even the law, where he's going to go today as he transitions into Romans 5 is here is how we should live in light of understanding that God has justified us by faith in Christ. He's going to move from the theological to the practical. He's going to move from a head knowledge to heart application. That knowing God and knowing intellectual and scholarly truths about God does not mean you are following him fully and understanding what it means to live in joyful obedience and in the fullness of life that all of God's promises to us are. That knowing theology doesn't mean you live out every time the practical implications of that same theology. And here's why I love this, right? Over the past several weeks, as we've been studying the doctrine of justification, how sinful men and women are forgiven and restored into God's family despite their sin and rebellion, and he has shared the theological truth with us that we are only justified by faith in Jesus, now he says the fullness of the doctrine of justification is not just in the purchasing of a get out of hell free card, but that it has 
practical implications for you and I in the here and now. Right? So many people that have hang-ups with the gospel— So many people that that might look at you as a Christian and say, I don't understand how you can believe in that. They struggle for many reasons because they think our faith is a faith that only looks forward to eternity and doesn't look into the present. And Paul says the doctrine of justification is not just a doctrine for future eternity, but is a doctrine that should give us great hope and affect the way we live our lives now. That it will affect and change the way we view everything. And so the question we're going to be answering this morning as we continue to look at this text is, what does the life of a Christian look like as they grow if they truly believe and have faith in what God has done? So continue to look at verse 1 with me. He says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, look at the first thing that Paul declares is true of you and I, If we have been justified by faith in Christ, he says this, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you guys may or may not know this, but the New Testament was originally written in Greek. Okay, And that term, we have, is the Greek word echo. And here's here's kind of something I need to let you guys in on because I think it's important that we be open and honest about the Bible and open and honest about God and how we interpret Scripture and what's going on. Romans chapter 5 verse 1, that particular word has some textual variations in the various manuscripts we have, right? If you guys understand how we receive the New Testament, Paul originally wrote this letter and Xerox didn't exist in about AD 50, Okay, it wasn't like he could walk in, scan it into his crappy HP printer that, that he has, like me, right, and then try to figure out how to then make copies of that, right? What he would do is he would send that letter, and then what would happen is people would sit down, they would read the letter, and then they would hand write and copy what the original was, right? So, you know, before copiers, the original uh, copy machine were scribes. They took these important religious texts and they copied them down. And so what would happen, as you can imagine, is every once in a while there would be small little errors or variations because imagine if I told you to sit down this afternoon and I wanted you to just completely hand write out the first five books of the Old Testament, how many mistakes do you think you would make? Right, it probably wouldn't be a ton, but there'd probably be a few punctuation errors, maybe a misspelling here or there, maybe an extra line of of the word put in here or there. Nothing maybe that would change the the meaning of the text, but there might be some some scribal errors. Okay, this particular word echo, right, E-C-H-O, right, if you understand Greek at all, there are two kind of endings for the letter O. Okay, the first one is the Greek omicron, right, which actually looks like a letter O, and the other one is an omega, and it looks like a W, okay? Now, here's why this is important, right? That one letter can change um, the, the, the meaning in some ways of that word we have, okay? If it is an omega, like most of the translation, most of the manuscripts hold to, right, it is in what's called, the tense called the indicative. For the for my English majors in here are getting really excited right now because we're talking about grammar and no one ever talks about this after seventh grade. Right, and the indicative means a, a statement of fact, meaning we have this, right? It is true. It has happened. It has been obtained. So if the omega is the proper letter that's supposed to be there in this word, right? What we have is Paul stating, a, making a statement of fact saying, we have peace. It is there. It has been purchased. It is done. Some of the manuscripts, though, have an omicron at the end of that, right? That, the, the little letter O, right? And that changes the tense of the verb to the subjunctive tense, Right? And what the subjunctive it has more of a, a, a different meaning, and it changes the, the, the have there from a statement of fact to more of an invitation. Right? Let, let us have, let us participate, let us enjoy, right, would be a better way to translate this. Now, some of you guys are sitting there like, Kevin, why in the world are you talking about this? Why does any of this matter? Why are you giving me both a Greek lesson and a really bad one at that on top of a, a probably pretty poor English lesson? Because in reality, right, I think the indicative rendering is probably the most correct copy of Paul's original letter. 
Okay, but here's, here's the point I want to get to you. When we study the scripture, right, one of the things that can frequently happen is we study something like this and we say, oh my gosh, like there's a textual variant here. What's going on? The reality is of what, whether it's in the subjunctive or whether it is in the indicative, here's what Paul is saying. We do have peace because if it's in the subjunctive, he's inviting you into that peace. And if it's in the indicative, he's telling you you have it, you should be enjoying it already. We do have peace with God so we can begin to walk and live out that peace with God. Before what Christ had done on the cross, before that time, before his life, death, burial, and resurrection, there was no peace for you and I with God. Many of us live a life without any understanding of that. Right? One of the, the, the great issues of growing up in a, a, in a culture like ours, which is saturated with Christianity in many ways, is that we lose sight of the fact that to be in sin is direct and open rebellion towards the creator of the universe. It's not just, hey, I did some things wrong. It's treason. It's rebellion. It's denial of God's authority and character. It's placing yourself on the throne of the universe instead of God who is supposed to be there. And that what Jesus has done through justification has brought peace to a wartime situation between us and the Father. Guys, we, we hear language like this all the time because we, we grow, you know, we're in the South. There's still the hangovers of evangelical culture here. And so we hear the term God loves us all the time. God loves you. God did this. If you are not in Christ, yes, God loves you, but his wrath is also pointed at you. Right? It's the equivalent of, a, of an armed standoff between two military powers. And guess what? To, to put it, to use a, a modern day example, we're North Korea and God is the United States. Yes, we are just as crazy as the North Korean dictator to think that we could even stand up against that. And that God, right, stands there before us, right, with his wrath pointed out us, but not completely pointed out and poured out on us. And then in comes Jesus to bring a peace between the two sides, between you and I, and God the Father. And so the first kind of practical implication that Paul gives us is that you and I are no longer at enmity with the Father. That we have peace with him now. That many of us treat our relationship with, with God as if he's the, the angry father just waiting for us to mess up. And Paul says that the doctrine of justification says you, to you and I, right, there's peace there. God's not waiting to jump on us and punish us, that there's peace and harmony there. There's tranquility, right, that the two sides might enjoy one another and be in fellowship with one another where once there was nothing but discord and rebellion. How might that change the way we relate with God if we fully recognized that and understood that? How might it change the way that you approach God in prayer to understand that that peace has already been purchased? You're not trying to earn God's favor anymore. God's already done that for you in Christ. How might that change the way you treat the less fortunate? How might that even change the way you approach your own sin? That instead of trying to clean yourself up and get yourself ready and to be presentable to the Father, that Jesus has already done that for you. Instead, pick yourself up and worship him. And the second thing that Paul is going to point out as a benefit of this justification is this. Look at verse 2. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. He says we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We've gone from wartime wrath to grace and unmerited good favor with the Father. 
see the language there, guys? It's all relational. Right? That, that where once there was enmity and a lack and a broken and fractured relationship, that that fractured relationship has been restored and now we can stand in that relationship. This is what, you know, many of you guys grew up in an evangelical culture, so you're familiar with people saying, I have a personal relationship with Jesus. Right? This is where we get terminology like that. I had somebody tell my wife one time in the first year of our marriage, I remember she came to me and she's like, hey, somebody told me that we're wrong for claiming to have a personal relationship with Jesus because it's unbiblical because the Bible doesn't explicitly teach that anywhere. And the reality is this. Technically, the person that told that to my wife was right. Nowhere in the scripture will you ever find, open it up and say, have a personal relationship with Jesus. You won't find that anywhere. You also won't find the doctrine of the Trinity that way either. There are many things that we know and glean from scripture that aren't explicitly taught but are implicitly taught by what the writers are saying. But the language of reconciliation and relationship between God and his children is littered throughout scripture. A better term that is probably not going to become popular, but to understand relationally how we relate to God is union with Christ. That you and I, if we believe upon Jesus, are in a union with him. And it's even stronger than just a personal friendship. Because here's, here's, here's my problem with using language like I have a personal relationship with Jesus. Every one of us in here has personal relationships, and a lot of those relationships are jacked up. I'll just use that term again. You guys make fun of me for saying jacked up all the time. I don't know why I do that. But very few of us have fully functioning, super healthy relationships with those around us. Right, we're getting ready to head into the holiday season. How many, guys are you, how many of you guys are super excited to see every single one of your family members over the holidays? Now, there's one hand that went up in here, right? Everyone else is like, I mean, yeah, I'm excited to see about like 90% of my family, but there's always, you know, like crazy Uncle Tim or, you know, you know Aunt Gladys with her fruitcake that she shoves down everyone's throats. You know, there's always someone in the family, right, that you have a relationship with, and you, it's, just, it's just weird. The, the relationship is just dysfunctional. You have a personal relationship with them. You have a dysfunctional personal relationship with them. And many of us, if we try to understand our relationship to God, we understand it with the same level of dysfunction. Like, oh, you know, well, I have a relationship with him, but, you know, I sinned today, so, you know, God's kind of probably kind of mad at me today. Or, hey, my, you know, my life's not going exactly the way I want it, so I'm kind of mad at God right now. And, it, you know, we have a personal relationship, but it's kind of dysfunctional. And what Scripture teaches is that you and I are in union with Christ, right? And that union or that bond is inseparable because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Right? Paul's letters mention this idea of union with Christ nearly 200 times throughout his letters, using terms like in Christ or with Christ or through Christ, right? Throw John chapter 14, verse 20 up there, right? Here's even Jesus himself kind of talking about this idea of union with him. He says this, in that day, right? He's talking about a future time where the Holy Spirit will be given. He says, in that day, you will know that I am in my Father. And look at this, and you in me and I in you. Meaning to be in fellowship or union with Christ is far deeper than this fleeting idea of having a friendship. There's a much greater bond and that what justification has purchased for you and I is that we are in a real united union and connection with God. Right, a, a, a blogger for the Gospel Coalition, Cameron Cole, put it this way. In simple terms, union with Christ captures the mysterious reality that Christ dwells in the hearts of believers and believers simultaneously dwell in the heart of Christ, thus they are one. Justification isn't just a get out of jail free card, guys. It isn't just a declaration of not guilty. It brings you into union with the Trinity. It brings you in to a greater and deeper knowledge of the God who created you so you might fully understand who you are and who he is and that that relationship would grow and that your love and appreciation with him might grow. And look at what Paul says this union creates. 
that that union might create in you and I the ability to rejoice in hope of the glory of God, is how he finishes verse 2. That understanding what this justification has given us, how we stand in it and live in us, allows us to rejoice in hope of the glory of God, right? That word rejoice means to make much of. Here's what Paul's saying. Because Jesus died on the cross for you, your sin, and mine, we are in union with him, and we can have a party celebrating him. How many of you guys know Christians that don't really act like that? How many of you guys feel, feel like you are that Christian? As one of the greatest barriers to an unbelieving world is a people that profess Christ and the glory of him with their mouth and live life as if he's not that great. And Paul says, look at how much we have to celebrate because of what God has done. <laughs> look, we, we have peace where there was no peace. We have a restored relationship where there was no relationship. Let's celebrate that. Let's make much of God and celebrate him because of what he's done. Let's not wallow in our sin. Let's not wallow in the, in the fact that I'm not the best Christian I could possibly be or I don't have the following I want or I only got 15 likes on my Facebook post instead of the 35 that my roommate got for the same picture. Let's celebrate who we are in Christ and what he's done for us. And so the, the two kind of practical ways we, we start living this justification out is that we enjoy and live in the peace that God extends to us, that we enjoy the relationship and the restoration of union with God. And then look at the third one. Some of you guys aren't going to like this one. Starting in verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This probably comes to one of the craziest things that is true of Christians that we celebrate in trials and sufferings. Let me, let me pause for a second before, <laughs> before I go any more death. This does not mean you're like, you have to be excited that bad things are happening and go look for them, right? Like, I'm not, I'm not teaching you right, to seek out pain. That's not what Paul is saying. It does mean, though, that when life hits rough patches and trials, that they have a purpose, that there is a reason for them, and that that purpose is a deeper union with Christ, greater glory brought to him, and a greater reliance for you in seeing who God is and his love for you. Right, look at what he says, right? Suffering does what? Produces endurance. It's a, it's a lot like a track athlete, right? We have, a few, we have a few athletes in here this morning, right? Guys, I can't run much more than 100 yards before I'm ready to pass out, right? I have no endurance, right? And so, 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 so if you ask me the question, Kevin, can you run? Yes, I am able to physically run. Kevin, can you run more than 100 yards? No, probably not. Right, I'll have some sort of an asthma attack or whatever else, right? Because I have no endurance. I haven't trained my body to go through, right, the suffering of running and creating cardiovascular strength. I have no endurance, right? I've not put my body through that. Paul says that suffering is a tool that God uses to increase endurance for you until God calls us home. That you could stand in the midst of the brokenness of the world around you and endure through it while trusting that God's promises are still true. Now, that endurance, Paul says, leads to character. 
And the, the idea behind that word in the Greek is a consistent display of certain attributes about who you are. Meaning, right, that to, to go back to our track analogy that earlier, right, if you have displayed consistently that you can run five miles or 10 miles or 20 miles or some of these athletes run like 45 miles or whatever you guys are doing. I have a friend that lives in Waco. She runs 100-mile marathons because she's crazy. They've displayed over time that through that endurance, they are actually an athlete. That they, that they are a runner, right? Could that term be used to describe me? No, <laughs> right? Just, just because I am able to run does not mean that I am a runner. I do not have the character of a runner. Paul's saying that suffering produces an endurance and that endurance over time will display to an unbelieving word world the character that you are a follower of Jesus Christ and that you are adopted as his son or daughter. That it is put on display through that endurance and that that character, right, knowing that produces hope. Hope not just for you, right, because you can see the fruits of that character coming out and you can rejoice in what God has done to you, but also hope to an unbelieving world who says, how in the world can someone stand in the midst of a trial like that and have hope and glorify God? Man, that God must be great. Often we have to go through trials so that as we come out on the other side, Jesus is the faithful and true prize that we know he is, that we know him to be. My, my good friend Aaron Prophet, he's the pastor of Aletheia Tampa, right, has walked through probably, in my mind, the worst thing that could happen to any human being. At, at, at five weeks old, they, they lost their second born son. They, they, they walked in to get him that morning and he was blue and purple. And you look at that and you say, how in the world could something like that happen? Right, the, the brokenness and the hurt that that brought he and his wife, that it brought their immediate family, that it brought their extended family and then brought to us as their brothers and sisters in Christ as a church, hurt for a long time. And yet I see in Aaron and Ashley a deeper love and pursuit of Jesus than I saw before that time. Because for them, in the midst of that suffering and that trial, God brought them through with endurance they rejoiced in their sufferings and Jesus became the true prize and treasure that he always was in their hearts, but it became fully put on display during that time in their lives. Even with Josiah, right, the Lord has shown Jackie and myself many things, right? I've, I've learned so many things about the Lord and his goodness towards us, right? These are important lessons that I may have never learned without walking through suffering with a child who has epilepsy and being completely unable, unable to do anything about it. I've learned that I'm not in control. Probably one of the most important lessons we can learn as human beings, you are not the sovereign creator of the universe and you are not in control. I've learned that I don't own my child but that he belongs to God and I've simply been given my son and I get to steward him. And that for as long as God gives him to me on this earth, I'm going to steward him well, but he does not belong to me. He's not my property. I've learned frequently that without God's intervention, none of the miracles or things I want to see be done will be done. But probably the most important thing I've, I've, I've learned, and this is going to sound crazy, I've seen through the midst of all this that Jesus is better than a healthy child. He is. And I say that with great pain in my heart because I desire nothing more than a child who doesn't have to walk through seizures and epilepsy. 
And yet I can sit here and tell you this morning, Jesus is better than that. He's better than my suffering. He's better than my wife's suffering. He's better than your suffering. And that through suffering, he teaches us that and reminds us of that truth. And so through, through these simple five verses, right, Paul says here's a practical way of understanding the doctrine of justification here in the here and now doesn't just, dis, doesn't just secure for you and I hope for eternity, but it brings us peace with God. It brings us union with the Son and the Father. And it allows us to, in suffering, rejoice because we know that this place is not the final say. But that God, as he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, is reconciling all things to himself. And that all will be set right with him. Now guys, inevitably a question pops up when, when we talk about God and suffering. Inevitably, every single time. Right, the question will pop up and say, is God really good though if he would allow suffering and use suffering as a tool for our sanctification? Is God really good to have suffering be not just a part of the, of the Christian's life, but a promise of the Christian's life? Look at what Paul says in verses six through 11. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Paul says, you want your proof on whether God really loves you or not? You want proof that God is really for you and is not just out to get you and make you suffer? When you were weak, when I was weak, Christ died for us. Meaning you and I bring nothing to the table and yet God demonstrates his love for us by sending his son to die in our place. That there could be no greater way to demonstrate love than for God to give the life of his son for you and I. Yes, there is suffering, but that suffering actually produces hope in us and that God demonstrates his love towards us and that in that original declaration of justification, Christ purchased all of that for us. And remember this, right? It's, it's not just that God did it, but look at what he says there. He says he did it at the right time, meaning that God planned all of this out. Hey, have any of you guys ever read the Old Testament like I used to? Right? And you kind of like, you know, especially like when I was a first became a believer, right? What do you do? You start in the book of Genesis because that's where we start in every other book. Right, and you're reading Genesis, and you're kind of like, oh, this is great. God created the universe, and there's all these people. And I'm like, oh, wait, they screwed it up. Right, and then you keep going, and you read the story of Cain and Abel, and you're like, oh, this isn't good. Right, <laughs> and then you, by the time you get to that, you know, everyone's favorite children's story, the destruction of the entire human race minus Noah and his family. Right, you're, you're like, oh, God, no, you're killing everybody off. <laughs> Let's put a picture of a rainbow on the wall of our children's room. <laughs> right? And you read through the Old Testament and you're like, is God in control here? <laughs> right? It's kind of like God's moving from like one, like one like experiment to the next. Well, Cain and Abel failed. Let's try the next one. Let's, let's move on to Noah. Oh, Noah failed. Let's, let's move on to the judges. Oh, there's a good judge, but then, you know, God's people are back to rebellion again. Well, let's try a king. Oh, Saul's going to invite a witch to bring back Samuel from the dead. <laughs> this is getting weirder and weirder. Like, God, God, where are you in all this? Like, are, are you in control? Are you sovereign? Or are you just kind of like flying by the seat of your pants, making things happen, kind of, you know, deciding what you're going to do next as the human race continues to kind of devolve into the full weight of their sin? Paul says, nope, that's not how God operates. That from the outset, God's plan for you and I was to be justified by faith in Jesus Christ. And at the right time, meaning every single one of those Old Testament stories that we're making fun of right now have a purpose. That God was demonstrating many things to us 
not the least of which was our inability to get to God on our own and yet his abiding faithfulness in the midst of our sin. And pointing us to a greater need for God to intervene, which he ultimately does at the cross. This was God's design from the outset. I love what Paul says in Ephesians chapter one. I'm gonna turn over there and I'm gonna read this to you. Look at verses three through five with me in Ephesians chapter one. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Meaning God has planned this entire thing out from the beginning and he's not surprised by any of it. And that at the right time, Jesus died for you and I so that we might enjoy all that comes with justification. And look at what he says in, as he continues in Romans 5. Look at what he says in verses 7 and 8. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's like, look, God planned from the outset to save you from your sin by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die for you. And at the right time, he sent him. That's how he's displayed his love for you. Look, and if you don't fully get that or you're having a hard time comprehending about that, think about this. Very rarely will someone give up their life for someone. It just doesn't happen. It's super rare. And usually when that happens, you see it as great, we, we celebrate it as human beings as great acts of heroism. Right, that firemen would run into a burning building to try to save somebody. Right, we elevate those people. Right, we honor them. We honor the men and women who are first responders in those situations that might give their life for another person. But most people aren't going to do something like that. Much less so would someone do something like that if we knew the full weight of the sinfulness of the person that they were saving. But if you think someone's a good person, you might be willing to give your life for them. But if you know them to be a murderer, you're probably not gonna be super pumped about giving your life for them. Right? How many people wanna, wanna give their life up for a terrorist? Don't sign me up for that. And yet look at what Paul says. Jesus died for you while you were in open rebellion and treason towards God. You weren't a good person. You aren't a good person. You didn't offer anything to him. God loved you anyway. That is the cross. That is the fullness of what God has done in Christ. He's demonstrated that love even in the midst of your suffering. And then he answers another question in verses nine and 10. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life, meaning this, right? Some of you guys have heard some weird, right, kind of like doctrinal Christianity over the years that says that the doctrine of justification states this, that you're a sinner and Jesus died for you. And so, you know, you come to the front of the church and you pray a prayer, or, you know, you, I, I make fun of it all the time, but you went to church camp and you threw your bad CDs into the fire, right? And, you know, for those of you guys that are in college, CDs were these things that you used to stick in a CD player and they played music. 
and you would do all these things, right? And like you were justified in that moment. You, you, you understood God's grace in that moment, right? But then many of us live and sometimes are even taught that life after that moment is completely dependent upon you and your performance. And that as you live as a Christian, it's all about how good of a Christian you can be, right? Can I follow God? Can I pray enough? Can I, can I help the, the needy and the poor enough? Can I go to church? Can I memorize enough scripture? Can I, can I do all these things? And you create this chick- checklist and you're right back to religion. <laughs> look at what Paul's saying. He's like, look, no, 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 no. We were justified, meaning God's wrath was satisfied by the death of Jesus. How much more so will you continually be rescued because of God displaying that you will be through the resurrection of Jesus Christ? That you have been offered new life and given that new life in him and Jesus is alive and interceding on your behalf and has promised to finish the work that has begun in you. That the gospel, the good news of what Christ did on the cross for you and I is not just good news at the beginning when you hear and believe, but throughout your entire life and through eternity. That the gospel continually saves, not just at the moment of salvation. And if that isn't enough, remember what he said earlier in verse 5, that God has poured out his love into our hearts, that we have access, and he has given us the Holy Spirit. Meaning that God demonstrates this love towards us, not just at the moment of salvation, but throughout your entire life as a Christian on this earth. And that God's promise to you and I is that he will see you through to the finish line of your time here on this earth. That is his promise. That is his guarantee. And at that finish line is not a Lamborghini, is not a bigger house, is not a better job, is not a life free of health problems, although some of these things are going to be there. But you know what's going to be there? God. You get him. He is the great prize and treasure and that God has promised to us in the justification that he's given us in Christ that you and I will be there at the finish line because God has done it for us. So here's what we're gonna take away from today, guys. Justification is theological, right? It is a doctrine of scripture. It's something we need to hold to and affirm and believe in. Right? That we are saved, you and I, if we are a follower of Christ, if we have placed our trust in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as being sufficient to pay the penalty of our sin and suffer God's wrath, right? that we are saved from the wrath of God and declared not guilty. That is the doctrine of justification. That is a theological truth. And that we come to that by faith in Jesus. The problem, though, is that many of us stop at the intellectual knowledge and never move out and live out the practical implications of that truth. That we don't live out what that actually means to be a Christian, what it actually means to believe in Jesus. Justification has practical implications for the present for you and I, not just eternity. That presently, this morning, if you are in this room and you are a professing believer and follower of Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have peace with God the Father and you can enjoy that. God is not out to get you. God is not seeking opportunities to constantly punish you. He's not Santa keeping a list and checking it twice. You're naughty. End of the list. You can live freely, pursuing obedience according to God's words with him, not out of fear of constant punishment, but out of of the knowledge of knowing you are already part of the family. 
you are already God's son. And I use that word on purpose because Paul does. Because it doesn't matter what your gender is. Being a son in biblical times meant you received the inheritance of being a son of that father. And every single woman and man in here is a son of God because we are given that inheritance. Now, not only do we have that peace with God, but we also have access with God, union with Christ. Right, throw up Colossians chapter three for me, please, Brent. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. This is Paul's encouragement to the church at Colossae on how to live out the practical implications of their justification. Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Here's his great encouragement to you and I. We are in him and in that union, we can trust in the future glory that God is gonna bring and usher in with the second coming of Christ. But in this time now, in that union, you and I can enjoy spiritual disciplines. That spiritual disciplines shouldn't seem like religion, but they should seem like joyful things that we get to participate in. Prayer. Prayer is getting to talk with dad. Repentance. Right, being fully known by God, confessing your sin and having the promise that he forgives you and is gonna walk through a change with you. Reading the word of God. You know how many people would love to be able to hear from their father? To get to spend time with their father? God the Father has given us a great way to hear from him. And we can enjoy that union if we simply spend time with him in his word. That union with Christ also means serving. Serving those in need. Serving the body of Christ. Bearing one another's burdens and celebrating with one another in our victories. These are practical implications of justification. And then lastly, God gives us an invitation to rejoice in suffering because it's momentary. And sometimes suffering is brought on because of something we've done. Like a parent disciplining a child, it has a purpose to correct and grow and disciple that child. And sometimes suffering seems to come for no reason at all and yet God's promise to you and I that suffering produces endurance, which produces character, which produces hope that God is who he says he is and that he is enough. Guys, if we get this, if you are a Christian in here this morning, if you get this and don't just understand theologically, yes, Jesus died for my sins, I don't have to go to hell, but that justification brings a powerful truth to you and I on the way that we live in the present. All that Paul says in verse 11 of chapter five will be true of us. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Guys, do you know why, and I said this back when we were studying the book of Galatians, God did not save you because he needed you. He saved you because he chose to and for his own glory. And here, that, that some of you guys are like, what God, like, you know, I'm not special. or It's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is this. This can be one of the most freeing things you can understand about God. God saves you for his glory, meaning he's not after making you look great. He's not after making you be the best Christian in Gainesville. He's not after 
right, some special level of holiness. He's after our praise and worship. And if we understand the full magnitude of the cross, of the doctrine of justification, we will rejoice and make much of Jesus. And when you rejoice and make much of Jesus, life is beautiful. That's the entire goal of evangelism is to not have all the answers for apologetics. The goal of evangelism is to make much of Jesus to somebody else. The entire goal of worship music is not to have the best or coolest sounding chorus or to bring the most energy into a room full of people. It's to make much of Jesus. The goal of discipleship is to not learn as much theology and memorize as much scripture as you possibly can. It's to make much of Jesus. The entire work of the church is not to build up a group of people and see how many people we can cram into this room. It is to do one thing, and that's make much of Jesus. You and I exist for the glory of God not our own. And if we understand the full magnitude of what God has done, we will make much of him in all that we do, and he will be the great prize and treasure of our lives. I'm going to pray for us here in just a moment, and afterwards, right, the band's going to come up here, and here's what we're going to do for the remainder of our time. We're going to take communion like we do every week, and I'm going to invite you Right, if you are a Christian here this morning, to sit there and reflect on what we talked about this morning. Ask God to help you to come to a deeper understanding of the, the practical application of, of justification, of the gospel. That you might more fully believe in what God declares to be true of you so that you might enjoy peace and union with God. That you might rejoice in suffering with him. And then I ask that you would repent of any sin that you can think of. If you have someone in this room that you need to reconcile with, that you would go and do that and then you would walk up here and you will do communion not as an act of contrition, not as an act of shame because you've sinned this week, but as an act of worship because Christ freely gave his flesh and blood for you so that you might, when you partake of the Lord's Supper, rejoice in all that Christ accomplished on the cross. And that you would go back to your seat and that you would pray and you would sing and that you would make much of God. And then after we sing that first song, I'm gonna invite somebody up here, Lauren, and we're gonna baptize her and she's gonna declare all that God has done in her life and we're gonna continue to worship Jesus because he alone is worthy. In a week where we're thankful for so many things, for family, for food, for smoked turkey, for me, When we're thankful for so many things, may, be t- may today and every day be marked by a thankfulness for God and what he has done for us in Christ. That's my admonishment to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. God, if we fully believe and understand the magnitude of what we just read in your word. There is nothing on earth that can compare to the beauty and excellency of Jesus. Father, thank you for the cross. Thank you for your son. Father, forgive us of our sin. And may we not wallow in self-pity over it, but Lord, may we lay it at the foot of the cross and then trust by faith in what you have promised, that the wrath of God the Father was satisfied on Calvary. And may we not sit here and create a list or resolve to do better, except to resolve to thank you and worship you because you are worthy. 
And may that resolve lead to a life that is a sweet, sweet aroma to you that worships and praises and brings glory to your name, the name that is above all names. Jesus, thank you for everyone in this room. May we trust, abide, and find our hope in you. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys. I love you.